You can be seated. Take your Bible and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. Our text this morning in our expository series through the book of Exodus is Exodus 15, verses 1 through 21. Exodus chapter 15, starting in verse 1, the Holy Spirit says this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Yahweh, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, 
for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Father, we sing to you, for you have triumphed gloriously in the life, death, and resurrection of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask now that you would sanctify us in the truth, and we pray that your word is the truth. We pray these things, our Father, in the name of your Son, the crucified and risen Lord Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In April of 1992, the Los Angeles Times published an op-ed entitled, The Human Condition, Why We Like to Sing. And the article suggests that there is a unique power in singing. Listen to this excerpt. Long before Madonna, people recognized the power of singing. Worshippers in the ancient temples of India, China, and Tibet chanted to awaken chakras, thought to be the body's energy center. And the Greek philosopher Pythagoras encouraged his students to sing each day to overcome fear and anger, worry and sorrow. According to the experts, singing has the power to alter our moods and conjure up memories and feelings. Singing also provides an emotional release, a way to express our thoughts and feelings, says Margaret Shaper, a USC professor of voice. We sing because something inside us needs to express something beyond words. Everyone can do this to some extent. The human voice is the most perfect of all instruments. The article also says that singing is the only thing that we have that transcends age, race, and gender. And the article says that singing builds our confidence beyond music. Listen to the conclusion. This is the conclusion of the article. So forget what your kid brother might have said about how awful you sounded. Singing is the cheapest therapy you can find. To some degree, Christians and the Christian tradition have always taught something similar, distinct but similar. St. Augustine said that to sing is to pray twice. To sing is to pray twice. The medieval scholastic Thomas Aquinas said, Music is the exaltation of the mind derived from things eternal bursting forth in sound. The great reformer Martin Luther said that next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. And John Calvin said, now among the other things which are proper for recreating man and giving him pleasure, music is either the first or one of the most principal. And it is necessary for us to think that music is a gift of God deputed for that use. From the very dawn of time, God's people have always been a singing people. Scripture is fit to burst with examples of both believers singing to God and of God commanding believers to sing. Our text this morning is 
one example of God's people worshiping him by singing in response to his salvation. And so what we'll do is we're going to use this occasion, this text, Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21, to see what the Bible has to say to us about singing, and namely congregational singing, singing together as we gather every Sunday morning as a church. So what we're going to do is first we're just going to do a brief biblical theological survey across uh, the scripture to see what it says about singing, and then we'll look specifically at Exodus 15, 1 through 21, and draw out some points of application for Christ Community Church today. But let's start with a little biblical theology of singing. There's a sense in which Scripture, the Bible, and creation itself begins with a song. You see, the Bible opens in Genesis 1 and 2 with the creation account. The literary form of Genesis chapter 1 is undeniably poetic. And Genesis 2, then, is more of a literal recapitulation of Genesis 1. So to put it another way, Genesis 1 is like a poem or a song about creation, and then Genesis 2 is more like a history book that's telling us uh, specifically about how man was created Adam and Eve were created in God's image. Genesis 1 and 2 are both teaching the same truth, namely that God is the creator of everyone and everything. But Genesis 1 and 2 are teaching that same truth in two different ways. Genesis 2 is is more historical, it's more uh, literal, or um, it's, it's more just an account of a record of the creation of Adam and Eve. Genesis 1, in form, is is poetic. It feels kind of like a psalm. There's Hebrew repetition and uh, there's mirroring and all these different literary devices that are being used to make the same point. The symmetry and repetition of Genesis chapter 1 paints a picture for us almost as if God is singing the creation into existence. Now, for those of you who might be prone to reading your Bible in an overly literalistic way, don't get too upset with me. I'm not saying that you have to literally believe that God sang and God didn't speak, and if you don't, you don't believe the Bible, and we're, we're not getting into all that, okay? Don't get worried. I'm saying it's a po- the, the text is poetic in form, and so it's, it's as if God's writing a poem with his creation. It's as if God is singing his creation into existence. C.S. Lewis beautifully allegorizes this truth in his book, The Magician's Nephew, where we read of the account of the creation of Narnia by the great lion Aslan. I just want to read a a short excerpt uh, from The Magician's Nephew to you so you can kind of get a vibe uh, for what Lewis is doing here. Polly was finding the song more and more interesting because she thought she was beginning to see the connection between the music and the things that were happening. When a line of dark firs sprang up on a ridge about a hundred yards away, she felt that they were connected with a series of deep, prolonged notes, which the lion had sung a second before. And when he burst into a rapid series of lighter notes, She was not surprised to see primroses suddenly appearing in every direction. 
Thus, with an unspeakable thrill, she felt quite certain that all things were coming, as she said, out of the lion's head. When you listened to his song, you heard the things he was making up. When you looked round you, you saw them. This was so exciting that she had no time to be afraid. The lion opened his mouth, but no sound came from it. He was breathing out a long, warm breath. It seemed to sway all the beasts as the wind sways a line of trees. Far overhead from beyond the veil of blue sky which hid them, the stars sang again, a pure, cold, difficult music. Then there came a swift flash like fire, but it burnt nobody, either from the sky or from the lion itself. And every drop of blood tingled in the children's bodies. And the deepest, wildest voice they had ever heard was saying, Narnia, 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 awake, love, think, speak, be walking trees, be talking beasts, be divine waters. And the beasts and birds, by contrast, cry out a reply in harmonic unity, hail Aslan, we hear and obey, we are awake, we love, we think, we speak, we know. Lewis gives us here a beautiful and warranted interpretation of Genesis 1 because the Holy Spirit himself inspired Moses to write Genesis 1 in poetic form. He did so to teach us that not only is God the great engineer of creation, but God is also the great artist of creation. God is the source of the good, the true, and the beautiful. And the climax of this creation hymn in Genesis chapter 1 comes in Genesis 1.27. says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. If you read Genesis 1.27 in the ESV, you'll notice that that is structured poetically, the way they edit the actual pages to let you know this is Hebrew poetry. The eternal love song between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit gives birth to the creation and ultimately to humanity in the image of God. And because humanity bears God's image, we can't help but sing. The first ever recorded Human words in history are a song. After God creates Eve and brings her to Adam, Adam sings, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Genesis 2.23. You'll notice if you look at it in, in the ESV, I can't speak for every translation, but in the ESV for sure, they edit that, the way they format that is to let you know that this is Hebrew poetry, that Adam is, he, he's, he's singing a song, that Adam, the first recorded words we have of Adam are a love song to Eve in worship to God for creating a helper fit for him. And like Adam sang, then Israel also sang. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 15, 1 through 21 here in a moment, but this pericope is not unique. There are other songs throughout redemptive history in response to God's salvation. Think of Deborah and Barak as they sing their song of victory in Judges. Think of Hannah when she sings a song at the birth of Samuel. 
The Song of Songs is a love song between the king and his bride, foreshadowing Christ and his church. Of course, a majority of the singing that we find in Scripture comes from the Psalter, from the Psalms. The Psalms were literally the hymn book of Israel. For hundreds of years, God's old covenant people sang the Psalms as they gathered for worship. They sang the Psalms in their homes. Their children memorized Scripture by singing it. God's people trained their hearts to anticipate the fulfillment of God's promises by singing of those promises together. And when the time was right, God did indeed fulfill his promises. And the result, one of the results, was that people sang. In the first century, God the Father sent his son to be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. When Mary was pregnant with Jesus, she visited Elizabeth, who was pregnant with John, and Mary sang a song in worship, Luke 1, 46 through 55. When the angels announced to the shepherd the birth of Jesus Christ, there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased, Luke 2, 14. This Jesus, who they sang about, Jesus of Nazareth, lived a truly human life. He never sinned, Hebrews 4.15. That means that Jesus followed God's law perfectly. He did so in thought, word, and deed. We just confessed moments ago with Pastor Mike that we have broken God's law, that we have sinned against God in thought, word, and deed, that we have sinned against God by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We confess that every week. Jesus never sinned in thought, word, or deed. Jesus never sinned against God by what he did. Jesus never sinned against God by what he had left undone. Jesus was sinless. Jesus kept the law, and one part of that law-keeping, one part of that covenant-keeping, was that Jesus, Jesus sang the Psalms as he was commanded to do. I'll give you one example. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, Mark tells us that after Jesus uh, had the Last Supper with his disciples, after he transformed the Passover into the Holy Eucharist, Mark 14, 26 says they sang a hymn before they got up and went to the Mount of Olives. On that weekend, all of the promises that God's people had sung about for centuries were fulfilled when Jesus died on the cross, bearing God's wrath for the sins of his people. We just sang about it in that song, All I Have is Christ. Jesus, the righteous, took the just penalty for the sins of his people. This Jesus was buried. Don't gloss over that. Jesus died and he was so dead, it was so verifiable that he was dead that they buried him. And he laid in the tomb until Easter morning, that very first Easter, when on the third day the snow of sin and death began to melt, for Aslan was on the move. The spring of new creation began to dawn, the sun of eternal life had started to rise. It was indeed the beginning of the reversal of the curse. It was what God's people had been singing about and hoping for for hundreds of years. Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead. 
He is risen indeed. And now everyone who repents of their sin and places his or her faith in Jesus will be saved. That's what the Bible tells us. That's the good news that we call the gospel. All who take this knowledge, everything we just walked through about who Jesus is and what Jesus did, everyone who will take that knowledge and assent to its validity and then transfer their trust to Jesus alone, everyone who does that will receive the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the resurrection. And those who do so then in turn can't help but sing about it. That seems to be the Bible's argument. Paul modeled this for us in Acts 16.25 when he was imprisoned with Silas and they sang hymns to God. In our call to worship, Pastor Andrew read from uh, Colossians 3.16 where Paul commands us to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There are similar commands given in Ephesians 5.19 and James 5.13. We sing in thankfulness for what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, but we also sing in, in anticipation for when Jesus will return to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. In that day, everything sad will be untrue. Revelation 5 Verses 9 through 14 paint a picture of this future when all of the creation sings in adoration for the Lamb who was slain for the sins of his people. And so we see that Scripture begins with a song and Scripture ends with a song. And it is filled with the singing of God's people. And so now in Exodus chapter 15, immediately following the most important event in the Old Testament, we've talked about that over the last several weeks, that the exodus, the exodus and the crossing of the Red Sea, the Sea of Reeds, if you will remember, is the most important event in the Bible until the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The exodus is the archetype of salvation that Scripture constantly refers back to. This morning, we were in Bible class, and, and Andrew, Pastor Andrew was teaching on Philemon and Galatians. And in Galatians, Paul keeps using this imagery of you were a slave, but now you're free. You're a son. He's, he's not just pulling a, a random illustration. He's saying, remember the Exodus? God has done that for you fully and finally in Jesus. That's just one example. The Bible is filled with texts that hearken back to the Exodus. And so immediately following this, the most important event in the Old Testament, the, the most important event in the Bible until the death and resurrection of Jesus. In response to that, Moses and Israel sing. That's the first thing they do. They stop and they sing. Yahweh has just led them out of Egypt. We're, we're, we're entirely too familiar with this story. Egypt was the power of the world at the time. Whatever the equivalent, you know, America in 2022 would, would fill that spot, but it, it was that without all the human rights concerns, okay? It was brutal power. Pharaoh was the king of the world. All the other nations looked to Egypt as the greatest nation, and Yahweh just destroyed them and drowned them, and led his people out. And the first inclination, the initial response, is to sing. A song of victory at the sea. 
This exodus, of course, God leading his people out of slavery through his prophet Moses is pointing us forward to when God will lead his people fully and finally out of the slavery of sin and death through his final prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. That's what we've experienced, church. If you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's what you've experienced. You have lived through something. You have experienced something greater than what Moses experienced. All the signs and wonders, the Red Sea, those are mere pictures of a greater reality. You, you always hear people say that, you know, pictures just don't do it justice. Have you been to the Grand Canyon? Have you been to Niagara Falls? Have you been to Hawaii? Have you seen whatever the great wonders and beauty of the world entails? If you haven't, if you've only seen pictures, people say, then you haven't really seen it, right? It's just not the same. Okay, so we need to recalibrate our thinking here, our disposition. Imagine all of the plagues in Egypt. Imagine the crossing of the Red Sea. Imagine the walls of water coming down on the greatest army the world has ever seen at that point in history and saying like, that's a picture of the Grand Canyon. Jesus is the Grand Canyon. Have you been saved by Jesus? Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus? You've seen the Grand Canyon. As great as you think it would be to see these events of the Exodus, those are mere pictures. Those are mere signs pointing us to the reality of what, we, what God has done for us in Christ, experienced through faith alone. And how does this not make us want to sing? Our brief biblical theology that we did underscores the prevalence of singing in Scripture. It is everywhere, the Psalter in particular. Dr. Jim Hamilton, he's a professor at Southern Seminary, pastors at Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville. Uh, anything that he writes, go ahead and get your hands on. It's all good. He says that Exodus 15, 1 through 21 is the very first psalm we have in the Bible. Based on its content, based on its structure, along with its date of composition and placement in the canon, Exodus 15, 1 through 21 is indeed the first psalm in the Bible. Hamilton argues that Moses is doing something intentional here, that by leading Israel in this song, immediately following this great archetype of salvation, that Moses is giving instructional worship that looks backward in order to look forward. That's a very concise, helpful sentence. Okay, so I'm going to give it to you again. Instructional worship that looks back in order to look forward. So this isn't, this isn't mindless singing, right? This isn't emotions disconnected from intellect. This is instructional. Moses is seeking to teach the people by what he's doing. But what he is doing is indeed worship. This is genuine worship of the Lord praising him and thanking him for who he is and what he's done. He does that by looking back at what they just experienced in the Exodus in order to look forward to God leading them into the promised land, giving them his presence in the temple, and ultimately to his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Like many of the Psalms, the structure of Exodus 15, 1 through 21 is chiastic. Okay, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with that term, chiastic means it's, it's kind of like a pyramid. So it, it, it builds on both sides all the way up to the top. 
So the center of the psalm or the center of the song is usually the main point that they're trying to make. This is very common Hebrew literary form. Moses is doing it here. David does it often in the Psalms that you'll have this parallelism at the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse, and it'll lead to the main point, which is in the middle. Um, the song, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the, the structure here right now, the chiasm, okay? It begins in verses 1 and 21. So if you want to look at your Bible, Exodus 15, verses 1 and then verses 21, you can compare the same exact things. It says, sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Moses says it in verse 1, and then Miriam repeats it in verse 21. It opens the pericope and it ends the pericope, okay? Then you have in verse 2, Moses sings about how God is the place where he has found salvation. In verses 17 and 18, salvation is the place where Yahweh is taking them to his presence, okay? So 1 and 21 parallel. Verse 2 is paralleling verses 17 and 18. Verses 3 through 10 recount how Yahweh delivered them from Egypt. Verses 12 through 16 preview how Yahweh will deliver them from the nations that are in front of them. So you can see how there's a mirror here, building, building, building. And then both sides build to the climax, which is verse 11. Verse 11 is where we're seeing the point of Moses' song, where he says this, Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The center of this song, of this instructional worship, is the uniqueness of God. There is none like him. We used to sing that song in youth group all the time. There is no one like you. David Crowder. Yeah, I don't know. That's the point, though. Moses did it before Crowder did, okay? Crowder's a little derivative of Moses on this front. There's none like the Lord. His majesty is in his holiness. So Pharaoh had a type of majesty, but it, it wasn't a holy majesty, right? It, it, wasn't, it wasn't unlike any that the world has ever seen. It wasn't morally pure. It wasn't omnipotent, omnipresent. It, it wasn't, um, it, it, was, it was a derivative kind of authority, right? Just like David Crowder was derivative of Moses. Pharaoh's derivative of whatever the Lord gives him. The Lord is, his, his majesty is his holiness, his otherness. His glorious deeds inspire awe. He's awesome in glorious deeds. Moses is teaching us to sing to God based on who God is and what God has done what he has done in the past, and what he will do in the future. So at this point, we're not going to recount all of the details of the Red Sea deliverance because we did that two weeks ago. Uh, if you weren't here, if you missed the sermon from Exodus 14, you can check out the Facebook, the YouTube channel, uh, if you want to hear the expository sermon on Exodus 14. But what we are going to do, after now looking at Exodus chapter 15 and other places in the Scripture, is draw out some implications that we can learn and apply about singing today. So I think I have five. Let me remind myself. I do. There's five of them. 
Okay, here's the first one. God commands us to sing. God commands us to sing. Along with Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, and James 5.13, which we already mentioned, Exodus 15.21 gives us an explicit command to sing. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The Hebrew verb is sheer. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an observation. It's an imperative. It is the community is commanded to sing. Simply put, if you do not sing, you are in disobedience to God. Now, there are more reasons to sing than the fact, the simple fact that God explicitly commands it. There are other reasons. But if that were all we had, that would be enough. We must sing because God explicitly commands us to sing. Exodus 15, 21, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, James 5, 13. So that's the first implication we can draw out. God commands us to sing. The second one is that God is the audience of our singing. Notice in Exodus chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, to the Lord. In worship, we sing to God and no one else. Whether you're a part of the band that leads us every week or you're one who sits in the congregation to sing as I do, do not sing in order to impress anyone but the Lord. If you've been doing so, and only you know your heart, if you have been singing either as a part of the band or as a member of the congregation, and you've been doing so to impress other people, then you should repent, you should crucify your pride, and you should sing to the Lord alone. We're not here to worship you. We're here to worship the crucified and risen Jesus. On the flip side, if your pride is keeping you from singing, so we, we talked about the pride of singing for performance, if your pride is keeping you from singing, then what you should do is repent, crucify your pride, and sing. Are you self-conscious that you're not a good singer? Neither am I. I am not a good singer. And I've been told that I have the loudest mouth here. I'm not kidding you. Pastor Kevin has told me that when he's been out of town before, he's, he's gone back and watched the service on like YouTube or Facebook or whatever. And he's like, I can hear you singing from your seat. That's so awkward and embarrassing, y'all. My mouth is so big. Um, but you know what? If you're worried, like if you're legit worried, you know, people are going to judge me. They're going to look down on me. They're going to make fun of me because I can't carry a tune. Don't worry. If they're judging anyone, they're probably judging me. So I think you're all set. You know, if you want to come sit by me, stand by me when we sing, no one will hear you. That's what I'm told. So, and you know what? If they are judging us, who cares? I'm not here to worship them. I'm here to worship Jesus. And I feel like some fellas need to hear this. I'm not saying this 
is exclusively a problem with men. I'm sure there are women out there, maybe even some in our church, who struggle with pride and won't sing. But I can tell you in my 13 years of full-time ministry, I've seen that this is primarily a sin issue with men. The irony is that some of you men will tear up at the national anthem or you'll enthusiastically sing forward down the field on those rare occasions that the Lions score a touchdown. <laughs> or you'll, you'll muster up all the pride you can to sing your favorite college fight song. But when the church gathers for worship, you are silent and you are deadpan. Man, that's shameful. If you think you're too cool or too manly to sing, then you need to repent, you need to crucify your pride, and you need to sing. There is no man who has ever lived who is manlier than Jesus of Nazareth. You know why? Because Jesus of Nazareth never sinned. So he is literally, since Adam and Eve before the fall, Jesus is the truest human who's ever lived. Jesus is the truest man who ever lived, and Jesus sang. Sing to the Lord and sing to him alone. That was the second thing. The third thing is that God is worthy of our singing. God is worthy of our singing. We noted about Moses' song that it is primarily about who God is and what God did in saving his people through judging his enemies. A majority of the Psalms in Scripture, the entire Psalter and others that we mentioned, Deborah's song, Hannah's song, Mary's song, that's what they do. They, they contain objective truth about who God is and what God did in salvation. Now, that's not to say that there aren't parts of the Psalms that are subjective and can speak to our feelings as human beings made in God's image, but those emotions are never severed from the objective truth of who God is and what God did. This is a major problem in contemporary uh, you know, worship or Christian music. Probably shouldn't apply the label Christian to anything that isn't a person, but if, if we're going to use the common vernacular, modern worship songs, modern Christian songs, there's a reason the joke has been labeled, you know, that these are prom songs to Jesus. A lot of these songs are absent of objective truth about who God is and what God did, and they're filled with emotional responses to God. Those emotional responses are not wrong, but they must not be severed from the objective truth of who God is and what God has done. Namely, in salvation through Jesus. For example, take notice of verse 13. Exodus 15, verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by the, your strength to your holy abode. Man, what a superb summary of salvation that Moses gives us here. Moses declares that God redeems his people from slavery and into his presence. And the most important point here is that God is leading his people by his steadfast love. That phrase, steadfast love, this might be the most important word in the Old Testament. Notice I said might. It's in there a lot. 
The Psalter is filled with the term steadfast love. That's how the ESV translates it. Other translations might translate it differently, NASB or the CSB or the King James or whatever. But whatever your text says about that word, the ESV says steadfast love. We sang it in the opening of our service. Remember from uh, Psalm 13, 5 and 6? I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. The Hebrew word that the ESV translates as steadfast love is the word hesed. And even though I love the ESV, I don't think steadfast love is the best translation of that word. The best translation of the Hebrew word hesed is covenant faithfulness. You have led in your covenant faithfulness the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. I have trusted in your covenant faithfulness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It is by Yahweh's covenant faithfulness that he leads his people out of redemption from slavery and into his presence. Ultimately, God redeems us from the slave market of sin and death and into his presence by Jesus, his presence. Jesus is who? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, right? So Jesus is literally the presence of God. He's the embodiment of God's presence. And God does this how? Through Jesus' covenant faithfulness. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates hesed to the Greek word dikaiosune which means righteousness. By your righteousness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. Jesus is the righteous one. Why? Because he kept the covenant with God. Jesus is righteous because he never broke God's law. And it is through the righteousness of Jesus alone that we can be right with God. God in the history of humanity from Adam until now has only ever exclusively had relationship with people through covenant. There's never been a a human being in the history of the world who's had a relationship with God apart from covenant. And it is through the new covenant of Jesus alone that we can have a relationship with God today. And it is for this great salvation that God is worthy of our singing. Two more, let's move. Singing uh, Singing isn't just for God alone, okay? God sanctifies us through singing. Singing is for the individual benefit as well. It's not just for God's glory, it's also for your good. So we said earlier, if, God, if the command of God was all we had, it would be enough. That's true, but it's not all we have. Singing is also for our good. Congregational singing is a means of grace that makes us more like Jesus. Why? As the LA Times article rightly noted, Singing does something to us that speaking, reading, writing, listening, or thinking cannot do. Singing uniquely works out spiritual and emotional muscles in your heart and soul. And that's why congregational singing is commanded in Scripture. Ephesians 5.19 says that congregational singing is a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Congregational singing is a mark of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you filled with the Holy Spirit? Are you trusting in Jesus? Colossians 3.16 says that the word of Christ dwells in us by means of congregational singing. 
Pastor Andrew read that in the call to worship. James 5.13 commands Christians to sing. It's an imperative. It's a command. It commands us to sing praise when we're cheerful. These commands are given because God does not merely want us to renew our minds. He also wants us to refresh our hearts. Christianity is not merely pragmatic or intellectual. It is also emotional. God loves us. God doesn't merely want worship from our head or worship from our hands. He also wants worship from our hearts. And singing uniquely engages your heart. Here's the final thing. God unifies the church through singing. God unifies the church through singing. Congregational singing is for God's glory. It is for your individual good, but it is also for the good of the entire church. Singing is not merely an individual issue. It is a community issue as well. Congregational singing isn't just about you or me. It's about us. The imperative in Exodus 15, 21, that imperative, sing to the Lord, is a second-person plural imperative. It's not a second-person singular. It doesn't mean you as an individual sings to the Lord. It means all of you sing to the Lord. God's people are collectively commanded to sing. The verb from Ephesians 5, 19, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That verb, addressing one another, is a plural verb. It's not a singular verb, but a plural verb. So Paul is not saying you sing like you as an individual, but he's saying y'all sing. See, the Southerners, they have a way for us to know if their second person is either plural or singular. Up north, you know, my grandpa, he always said, use guys. Use guys, sing. That's what Paul's saying here. It's, it's a plural verb. The same is true for Colossians 3.16. It's a plural verb. The imperative, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The pronoun, pronoun excuse me, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That pronoun is a second person plural. It's not you as an individual, but let the word of Christ dwell in all of you by singing. Scripture does not say this individualistically, though that's certainly true. There are individual benefits, but it is communal. The Holy Spirit inspired the Apostle Paul to write, let the word of Christ dwell in you all richly by singing. The imperative to sing is congregational. And that's because God unifies the church through singing. We may all have different gifts, but like coming to the Lord's Supper every week, when we sing together, Regardless of talent, when we sing together, we are all on a level playing field and we are all lifting up our voices in worship to God. It not only strengthens your heart individually, but it knits our hearts together as a church. Earlier, we sang the hymn, Come Thou Fount. The first line of the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace. That's what happens when we sing. Our hearts are tuned. In response to the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we sing together, and it tunes our hearts to sing the grace of Jesus. And be, because that's true, singing is actually better than the cheapest therapy you can find.
Singing is a means of grace for God's glory and for your good and for our good. So church, sing to the Lord because in Jesus, he has dealt bountifully with us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we would ask now, Lord, that your word would not return void. You have promised that to be true. And so, Lord, we ask for those who would be in the room with us this morning who are not trusting in Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes through your word to see the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus did, and that they would repent of their sins and trust in him alone. Father, we pray for your people whom you have saved, that you would give us hearts that want to sing, Lord. You command us to sing. You command us to sing to you, Father, because you are worthy of worship. You command us to sing for our good as individuals, and you command us to sing for the good of the church. And so, Lord, I would ask for any who have been singing in pride to impress others, that you would tear down the idol in their heart of fear of man, that you would tear down the idol of faint praise, and that they would sing to you alone. Father, we ask for grace for those in our congregation who've been struggling with, with pride and don't want to sing, Lord, that you would that you would change their heart and shape their heart to want to obey you and to love to worship you through singing. Father, we ask for those who are in sin this morning that your word would rebuke. We ask for those who are suffering this morning that your word would bring comfort. Father, we ask as we come to your table and as we sing now, that you would knit our hearts together and that you would tune our hearts to sing thy grace. We pray in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.